This is Shaka Ward Speak. Hey, welcome to Shaco Art Speak. I'm uh, here with my co-host, um, not Dr. Snacksmill, not the eminently valuable Gareth Blackwell. Um, he's not here right now. He's actually studying uh, Brazilian jiu-jitsu and some um, ancient forms of deboning hot dogs um, and uh you know, hybridized cooking with Delta tamales. So he's taken these classes where he's combined these three, three things because Dr. Snacksmell is not a PhD by accident. He does this kind of work. So, um, so we're, we're going to be missing him today, I think. Yep. <laughs> but the good news is, uh, we have a code red situation. We have with us Cody Spice. Cody Spice. That's Godwin. right. <laughs> Happy to be back. So Cody's back. Um, we literally put Gareth's shoes down under the table and Cody's been trying to fill them and we're going to find out, um, they don't fit. So we've already found that he can't fill Gareth's shoes. It's kind of, it's kind of weird because I can't tell if they're too big or too small. That's right. I feel like it's That's both. the jujitsu part. Yeah. Yep. So I've got a lot of questions for Gareth yeah. when he gets back about yep. what his even shoe his size seat, is. Even his seat, how, he, how his seat uh, has like a nice divot in it. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's a lot of mystery. So Gareth is, is, uh, absolutely, uh, a, a lovely man of mystery. Yes. And so we miss you, Gareth, uh, if you get to hear this. And um, we'll do our best to honor you as you sacrifice um, time on the podcast for the sake of learning. That's right. Yep. And I can't wait for deboned hot dogs and um, jujitsu delta tamales. It's going to be great. When you're a good doctor, sometimes you just have to take that time out for the snacks and the yeah. smells. Yeah. I mean, that's right. For the research. <laughs> <you know. laughs> that's right. <laughs> so so, um yeah so with that um we have cody here and we're gonna you know we're not gonna skip a beat we're gonna we're gonna try to uh continue uh the podcast um conversations we're having and we cody's been doing some um cody's like our our personal drill he like drills into things and he excavates uh ideas and concepts and questions and um as a curious uh thinker and listener and learner and writer, uh, uh, Cody likes to bring bring things to Gareth and I, and so, uh, um, and then make us feel bad when we can't answer it, and he can. So that's what that's that's what Cody's going to be bringing to to the podcast. I think is is more of what Shaco Art Speak is, honestly. Um, and with that, Cody, what did you what are we what are we kicking around today? Yeah, so um, I have been doing some reading. Okay, and I've been. I started to do some research about um, studio visits mm-hmm. because over the course of listening to the podcast and talking with a lot of artists, I hear a lot about the idea of a studio visit. Um, it seems like it's pretty important to a lot of artists. Um, but I feel like I don't have a really clear idea of what exactly it is, um, what happens during a studio visit, mm-hmm. who participates. I mean, obviously an artist in their studio yeah um that's sort of built into the maybe you know yeah you know that's actually funny um maybe we can maybe circle background on that um so as i started to do some research online just reading you know google searching what is a studio visit um started coming up with a lot of articles on various websites um and a lot of those articles were either geared towards like critics or um gallerists who are attempting to sort of 
visit an artist, uh, possibly acquire works, determine mm-hmm. whether or not they wanted those works to be in a show or, or um, purchased. And then articles that were geared towards artists hosting those people in their space. Mm-hmm. Um, so kind of like advising in two directions. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So sort of like the two different parties that's sure. assumed are participating in these studio mm-hmm. visits. Um, and a lot of them were sort of like real nuts and bolts, like 10 etiquette tips <laughs> for curators when they're doing a studio visit to the artist. Mm-hmm. And they would have like these this little, you know, listicles. Um, and similarly for artists, like seven things to think about when people are coming to visit you in your studio. Yeah. Um, I didn't get a, a lot of time to really delve into it, but sure. just, just with those initial do you have questions, the, do you have the, uh, I, this may be backwards to what we agreed to, but do you have any of the, I mean, I like the idea that there's advice for us artists as far as thinking about maybe what to do. Do, do you have any, have any, can you recall any of the yeah. ones for the artists first? Let's do that one first. Okay. Yeah. Um, I'm trying to think. So for the artists, um, it was it sort of broke down to communication and presentation and uh-huh. then just hospitality. I would yep. say we're kind of like the big yes. categories. So um, one of the articles, which had sort of like quotes from gallerists and curators mm-hmm. giving advice, sure, um, was saying a lot of things like, know how to talk about your art yep. or be ready to talk about your work and explain what you're doing and why you're doing it. Yep. Um, and like have a potentially extended conversation yep that was a really big one yeah um yeah you kind of need like your elevator pitch your um which sounds horrible but you got to be able to say in a couple sentences yeah so that that was that was really interesting because i think that the context of it being like artist and gallerist curator meant that there was a really heavy heavily implied potential of transaction Mm -hmm. in in what i was reading so there was a sense of like this is your chance to make an impression so that you might be able to get work in a gallery or get work sold. Mm -hmm. Um, And so there was a little bit of like an economic language in some of that um, advice to know how to talk about your work in a very similar way that people would give advice to an entrepreneur about how to do an elevator pitch with an investor. Right. Um, So that was interesting that that was like sort of this this foundational assumption. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, around the studio visit. Yep. Um, so there's that communication, um, how you're presenting yourself as an artist, being able to talk about your work. And then the secondary things were mostly bound up in practicalities of things like clean up your studio, mm-hmm. make sure that you have work ready to be shown so you don't have people coming in and you're busy like unwrapping paintings mm-hmm. that have been in storage yeah, because, efficiency. you know, that sort of thing. Sure. Um uh, you know, things like having water and snacks was an advice, you know, having maybe like a place for people to sit down. Mm-hmm. Um, so those were a lot of those that pretty much encapsulates most of what the advice for the artists were. So yeah. make make your studio hospitable to people coming in and then be ready to show a set of your work and not be somehow surprised that people are coming to see your work. Right. When they're in your studio and then also t- be able to talk about yourself and your artwork. Yeah. Um, when it, do you want us to go to the critics or, or well, thoughts on that? Let me see. Let's. The first thing I think is just interesting is that from what I was reading, you know, a lot of it is just really bound up in those two parties that we mentioned. Mm-hmm. Um, I know in the context of just like 
talking with you and um, some other people who are coming out of the fine arts, there's also the academic context for a studio visit Correct. of artists visiting other artist studios. Yeah. Um, well, it's so, so I'm thinking about, so what I'm thinking about is how much this is born out like, uh, almost accidentally to MFA programs and mm -hmm. studio visit ethics situated around academic programming, training, and, you know, stipends given to, uh, curators and critics to visit studios. Yeah. And, and, and it's sort of like, um, it's like a, a rehearsal, a dress rehearsal for uh, really being out there somewhere having a studio visit. Mm -hmm. So you're in a, you're in a, as an artist, you're in this space where you sign up for a time and people come in and you go through the process and you, you do the talk and, you know, they ask you questions and, and it's really hard to know if, if the person, uh, the person in the room is actually really interested in what you're talking about mm -hmm. because they're paid to be there because they're brought in as a guest artist or speaker yeah. or, or curator, which I've experienced all of those. And so I've experienced breakthrough generosity where like I had David Reed in my studio, who is someone that I admire from afar, history books and, and things like that. And I had had him in my studio at BCU and, and um, he kind of broke the fourth wall of that experience and gave me his phone number and said, if you move to New York, I'd love to have you consider being my studio visit or a studio assistant. And that was like maybe maybe the highlight for me um, yeah. uh, because of how much I love uh, his paintings. And really generous, just warm individual. Um, and then I've had the opposite, which is like, I won't say their name, but they're really famous. Um, and mainly because it's a negative thing. They came in and sat in a chair in front of me with their back facing me and waited the clock out. Asked me like three questions. Determined that I was from California without me. Like they could tell somehow yeah and they were in california for a certain amount of time and then they left and it was it was really insulting this was an elitist wow jerk and he was an, a complete jerk but so you got this range you know and then you get you get everything in between and you become conditioned to go through the motions in a perfunctory way but you're not really expecting any at least for me you don't know when the authenticity is going to show up yeah so you're always on your feet for authenticity but you're also very leery and i think that can carry over into um a kind of eagerness for authenticity in a studio visit when you're outside of the institution. Yeah. Um, and so some of that institutional baggage can carry over uh, both for the one visiting and for the one being visited. And I think, so I just, I'm just saying, I, I just want to, you know, draw a circle around that and say that I think that informs some of the prescription yeah. that you you've uh, brought forward that I think are some helpful tips. Um Right. So maybe, maybe I just want to put that there as like a, mm -hmm. a, a conversation, like a conversation campfire. Like if we're, we're at a campsite, there's just a couple fires happening. So that's the first one. Okay. So maybe let's light a second campfire for adjacent to that mm -hmm. with your next list. And we'll kind of see how the campsite yeah. shakes out. Just a quick comment on what you just said though. It is interesting because as someone who's pretty outside of that mm -hmm. the idea of a studio visit does seem like something that i would expect the hope of going into to be like to have something authentic and that's actually maybe a little different than a very commercial or academic yeah. experience so it's interesting to think about that would be my ex you know the expectation for me going in not knowing a lot about mm -hmm. it would be like, oh, this is going to be sort of like a pretty authentic, personal, like I'm getting invited into 
where someone makes their work, yes. which is like a pretty personal space, yep. um, you know, possibly pretty vulnerable. Yep. And so it's interesting that that space seems like it has then had a lot of exterior uh, expectations put on it to the point where it can be talked about almost like a job interview. Exactly. And that's and I think that's actually a problem. So that, that's why I was like, there's a campfire. Yeah. And the known be known factor, I think, can eclipse this. And what you're saying can eclipse this, but it requires something more of of the visitor and also more of the uh, the maker in a certain kind of way. Yeah. So in order to get to an authentic place, you have to have authentic knowledge and a a rested state of being such that you're not you're not quibbling with the economy of time, and you're open to not only the work but the artists themselves in their humanity. So like like. Uh, um, I'm not actually worried about the studio getting cleaned up. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's and, funny uh, because going to the sort of advice for gallerists, curators yeah, who are coming to, um, one of the first tips was don't expect the studio to be clean. Yeah. So, so right. for the artist that's clean up your studio, for the other party who's entering it, don't expect everything to be pristine. Yeah. You know, don't just sit down on anything. Assuming that it's a seat that's available, yeah. Um, you know, there was yeah, a, so go, go through more, go go through some of those, and we'll, um, yeah. So, so sort of very interestingly and similarly, it came down to a lot about like communication and mm -hmm. then just uh, sort of etiquette expectations for the space, yeah. Um, so for communication, it was like don't make awkwardly personal statements about the artists, um, <laughs> it's and, amazing in a parentless society. We're parenting adults into how to just be a human being. Yeah, so and it's yeah. it's funny. It's some of the things. It's like, oh yeah, like don't don't ever say anything like that. Yeah, I mean, anytime. Yeah. Um, yeah. But apparently, it, it's specifically needs to be restated, maybe because there's assumptions about how artists are as people. Yeah. Um, that that can be unpacked. Um, d there were a couple points about not trying to make grand statements about how the artist's work fits into a large historical narrative, <laughs> um, which that seemed to be uh, probably born out of some anecdotal experience. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that would probably be in the... Uh, um, that's, a, that's such an academic thing to do. Yeah. That's such a part of... Um, it's a way of depersonalizing your understanding of what they're doing and in stepping it into a, a larger framework but here's the thing like prescriptions are always decent but there's always the case where it's actually helpful that so this is you know so anyhow yeah so so they did they did talk about you know there, there's an expectation that there's a conversation to be had um and that it is sometimes expected or helpful to provide feedback about the art mm -hmm. that's being shown by the artist um but in the articles they were pretty restrained yeah. and like, you know, make sure that there's a sense that that's an invitation that's been opened mm -hmm. or that you just like, don't, I guess just ramrod. Yeah. Um, Heaven forbid, you know, you step on each other's toes at all. Gosh, because yeah. we're so easily offended. And that's a really interesting thing because the setup of the, the way these articles are offering the idea of a studio visit is very much something that's occurring between strangers. It's mm -hmm. like a blind date yeah. in a weird way. Yeah. Or, or um, if not a blind date, then a, hey, I know someone mm -hmm. who's an artist 
who makes this type of work, and I know a gallerist who curates this type of work, mm -hmm. and I'm going to set them up on a date yeah. and see if sparks fly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they're, those two parties are coming together being like, well, we know the same guy. There's sort of like this, this loose connection, and we kind of have to feel each other out. Yeah. And it is kind of weirdly formal because there is no pre-existing relationship. Sure. Yeah. And so, yeah. And I mean, I think so like all of it, all of that stuff is just like basic being a person. Like, you know, if you have someone coming over, clean up your spot a little bit. Yeah. But here's, so here's the interesting thing, though. I mean, I think I think the, um, you know, in order to write a, write a useful article, you have to say useful things and you have to assume an audience to the extent that you can even say useful things. Yeah. So so I think um I still stand with the the way in which there are like um, distancing practices built into the conduct around uh, giving or receiving a studio visit, and I think some of those are unnecessary. I, yeah. I think some of those are protective, uh, both in two directions. So you can you can get a curator who is not as um, they have power, they have money, they have a gallery, let's say, or they have uh, the ability to secure galleries. And then, or, you know, so you could have a uh, gallery representation. You can have uh, a liaison for collections who, who um, seeks to secure work on behalf of clients. Um, you know, you could have, uh, uh, so somebody who runs a gallery or just curator who's working at a different level, like they're working big art fairs or big like uh, art Basel or um, some kind of biennial, uh, the Whitney biennial or something, you know, where they're curating for a three-year period for this particular biennial that's coming. And so they have to do this work of uh, catching a vision of what, what it is that they're going to talk about at the level, at the magnaphone, megaphone level of that particular museum institution. Like, yeah. what are we going to broadcast through this? And so you're searching for that. And then you have your, your common place studio visits, which are like um, affected. I think they're affected in a similar way to the way neighborhoods used to run. So, so what I mean by that is there's a time where neighbors would just stop by each other's house. Yeah. And if you go into the 40s and 50s, uh, artists would just show up in each other's studio. Hey, what are you doing? I'm painting right now, blah, blah, blah. Let me sit in here and smoke a cigarette and listen to jazz while you're painting. I, I, I just need to decompress. Like friends could stop by a friend's house on an unexpected. Yeah. And then the institutionalized aspect kicks in. And culturally, we neighbor differently. So now we don't really, I don't know of very many people that show up at each other's house unexpectedly. In fact, if somebody does, you tend to question their judgment. Right? What kind of person does oh, that? Oh, it's you definitely know, considered a faux pas. Faux pas. So, so similarly, the studio visits then it's the same thing. So there's a way that these two track each other. And so um, uh, what it does is it creates an, another kind of anxiety, which is I have to be strategic when someone comes in and what I, what I do. Yes. And um, what the end goal is. So there's a loss of knowing that frees people to their um, agency and decision-making where they can calculate and say, I'm just going to stop by today and see what's up, knowing that it's no harm or foul if the person says, not today. Yeah. Right. Or it is a little bit of a, an inconvenience, but you know what? I'm glad you're here. I'll, I'll welcome you in. Don't mind the mess. What are you up to while well, I'm doing this stuff? Like that's ge that generativity has been curated out of the equation. And so what it's done is it's driven things into sterile practices that are um, uh, at the expense of good things. Like I need to sell this work. I need to show. Those are good things. But the engagement becomes sterilized. And it becomes fear-based from the standpoint of um, don't want to offend anybody. 
Um, and I don't want to lose the opportunity because they have power I need. So if it's the curator, they got power I need, i.e. they're an artist yeah. and the other. So now there's a power negotiation. And not all the time, but a lot of times. Mm-hmm. And so these things eviscerate humanity and authenticity because you can't just be yourself and come in. And heaven forbids one day you wax poetic on the canon or something like that and you make a statement about someone's art that you wouldn't have done the next time with so-and-so because it wasn't fitting. Yeah. Right? Um, the the uh, assurances of outcome and success distance us distances us from the very thing that art brings us close to which is being human. Yeah. That's very, it's interesting that you say that because it seems like a lot of the advice, anytime you have sort of those lists, you know, they're, they're lists with the goal of achieving success. Mm -hmm. The claim is that if you follow these, uh, prescribed guidelines, you are more likely to achieve the success. And and you see that in Mm -hmm. all sorts of lists and things like that, not just for the arts or studio visits. Um, but that that guarantee is very interesting because the guarantee, the desire for a guarantee is born out of an expectation of a certain type of sort of commodity transaction that's mm-hmm. that is hopeful to occur. You know, yeah. hopefully the artist gets the exposure that they want. They get in the galleries that they want. They get um, interest and that eventually leads to purchases. Mm-hmm. And then from the gallerist or curator, you know, hopefully they identify an artist that is making work that they're interested in, mm-hmm. um, who is credible in such a way that it supports their institution's credibility. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it's like, okay, so with with those somewhat restricted um, motivations, if we can both enter into the space, check, 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 we did all the things right, hopefully we both get the outcome that we want. Yep. And then kind of... Um, you know, I guess you you could say the best case scenario is it, it creates a, a long-term relationship. Mm-hmm. But funnily enough, in these articles, there wasn't really any uh, guidance on what you can do to try to establish a long-term relationship. Yeah. It's just like how to get it so that this particularized event terminates well for yeah. both parties. Yeah. Or can terminate well if or when I need it to. Yeah. How can I exit the relationship? How can I... How can I divorce the curator, the gallery, the artist, the collector? Yeah. Um, so when collectors come in to your studio, that's that's a thing. You know, like the collector comes to your studio, you're aware that they're there to collect. Like when I've had people come to my studio and they're interested in my work, from that standpoint, it's a very different conversation. But here, so here's the funny thing, though. All of this requires knowing how to be a human being, just knowing how to relate to people. At its core, it's not actually um, extra magical. Um, it's actually pretty normative, but because we've eviscerated normative, like I said, we, we've lost the ability to be neighbors. We don't know how to be neighborly. We don't know how to say hello. We struggle with these things. So I've lived in more neighborhoods that don't acknowledge each other than I do that do. The one I live in now, people talk to each other. It's one of the few I've ever heard. And of in my larger neighborhood, the particular street I'm on, I've got people that have lived there 50 years. Test Even someone just two days ago testified to me. She said, this street is very unique. It's always been peaceful. It's always had this like neighborhood thing, and I was like, "That's so crazy." It's almost, it's almost is magical at that that point. Strangers wave, and I'm not leery, and I get to know people all the time because people talk to each other. Yeah, and so and so it's it's not transactional. So it's like, yeah, you know, I had a guy once, older gentleman driving his truck down uh, the alleyway behind my house, and I was mowing the lawn. It was a hot day, 
And he backed up and pulled back and he said, how are you doing? And I said, I'm good. How are you? He's like, just making sure you're okay. Like, he's like, this is a hot day. And I said, absolutely it is. And I said, what's your name? He said his name, said my name and said, well, I'm, I'm so glad to meet you today. Yeah. There was no benefit to stopping his truck and backing up and asking me if I was okay. As an, as an elderly man, as an elderly man, I'm not an older man, but I'm getting older, but you know what I mean? Yeah. So, so what I'm saying is we've lost the ability to be human in some ways. And so, um, it's, uh, you know, it's eviscerated in the transactional nature of things. That's eviscerated. Yeah. And so we're, we, we go through the motions and we, we, we're brought close to, we're brought close enough to the thing that's missing. So we're brought close to it. And because it's missing, it heightens our longing for it. So you get loneliness in the place of enrichment at the center of where you expect to find enrichment you know, surrounding the arts. Yeah. So a lot of, a lot of artists are lonely. And it, and then there is a narrative that says, well, that just comes with the territory of being an artist. And it's like, nah, I, I think you can be an artist to be lonely, but I actually think it's cultural because of the way we've eviscerated humanity from the equation. Yeah. And then that loneliness produces isolation, which can be talked about with mysterious terms yes. to heighten it. You mystify it. Yeah. And then that makes that can possibly set an expectation for a studio visit to be a mystical experience because mm-hmm. you're potentially entering into the space of a lone Eccentric. creator, yeah. shaman sort of figure. Mm-hmm. And you've got all this expectation of like, Ooh, is something going to be, our secrets going to be revealed to me? Sure. Um, and of course maybe, but, yeah. but like, you know, um, outside of a baseline, it's, it's weird to it's so if you if you can't be excited about the baseline the normative state of things um you're going to be mostly dissatisfied because the rare mystical encounter may be rare still and, and so you're left wanting and um so studio visits in every contextual occasion require things you go to work you talk to people i mean i try to be who i am all the time and that frustrates people sometimes but um, but there is an occasion like, you know, like depending on who it is, if I'm meeting for the first time, there's things that we do. Yeah. And, um, there's, there's like proper response to circumstances. Totally. Totally. You no, know, taking your wife out on a date means dressing in a certain way. That's yeah. Different from, me. I wear sweatpants, dude. Every time. I'm sorry, Laura. No, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> Hey, the thing about restaurants, those fancy ones, as long as you're wearing a jacket, yep. you can be in a tracksuit underneath. Yeah. Velcro shoes, sweatpants, and uh, a jacket, and I'm in there. That's right. That's, that's the new Just style. Make sure it's not a three-button jacket. Yeah, who's to say? tossed out. Yeah, who's to say? So with that, there is um, an opera. That's the know and be known thing. It's like to allow people to know you and to spend time getting to know people means you have to have time, frequency. And by time, I mean like lots of time. And if you don't have lots of time in a short amount of space, then you need lots of time in a lot amount of space. Like, you know, we're talking like build relationships with people uh, so that uh, you can be inconvenienced by someone stopping by. Like, can you can you get to the point where you're okay with somebody knocking on your door? Yeah. And, and saying, hey, can I come see what you're doing right now? Can you can you can you be um, can can you uh, uh, anticipate that to such an extent that you can have a conversation without realizing it was going to happen about your work and your stuff. And if you could prepare for that, if you could be that and you can be okay with that, I think by, by extension, then you can be okay with everything else. Like you can, it's like, if you could be ready for, for a spontaneous show up and uh, be hospitable, whether the studio is clean or not, whether you got snacks or not, whether you're clean or not, 
Um, can you respond like a human being in kind, in honesty? Um, we could create a different culture. You may lose some opportunity, but you'll create, you'll, it'll, it will be generative to other opportunity. And I think as long as people are, it's like kind of like, this is a dumb way of saying it. This is completely, maybe it doesn't even work. Celebrities only have as much power as we give them. We stop watching baseball. Baseball loses all its money. Baseball stars lose all their star power. If you stop watching movies, Spielberg stops being Spielberg. You see, so there's a power dynamic. So if we wanted to see a different world, we just have to stop putting money in TikTok. <laughs> well, did I say that? I'm sorry, my bad. But but you know, do you do you understand what I'm saying? Like, yeah. Like like as soon as you really do that, you can create a a revolution in a different direction. Anyhow, this is a total tangent. But since you brought up TikTok, um, do you think the prevalence of things like Instagram have not replaced the need for the studio visit, but eclipsed or somehow pushed into the space where studio visits used to occupy, where now maybe artists feel like the way to get exposure is Instagram or like you have curators who are on Instagram, like looking at a bunch of stuff. And there's a sense that that maybe the studio visits like not even needed anymore. Yeah. So what I would say is, um, full disclosure, Chicago art space, would it be what it is without, without Instagram? And I've honestly made real friends with people from Instagram. Like I've actually met real artists. We are now friends. They are part of the family. And so, 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 so it's a tool. And when it's rightly under, understood as a tool, Instagram, uh, tools can facilitate human relationships. Yeah. Right. So provided there's authenticity and something of substance that comes once the tool is no longer in use. Meaning we have a relationship you're showing here. Now we're friends and I'm staying in touch with you even after the studio visit, after the show, after, before. And so I can't lie and say, I can't sit here and bash Instagram too hard because so, so it's, it's, it's more the way in which we abuse tools. Okay. So would, would be my point. So, it's, so it, it doesn't have to eviscerate the studio visit, but it's a tool that works to expand the potential for both the artist and the gallery. Now, but but like most things, humans spoil good things. We take good things and make them real bad. Yeah, we, we mess tools up. We stop using them as tools, and we think of them as the substance. And that's our that's our perpetual problem. It seems. Yeah, and that kind of tracks with what we were talking about earlier about some of those weird formalizations that have occurred around the studio visit. Is it seems like if the heart of the two parties who are involved do have that desire to be hospitable and be generous when they're coming together, then a lot of the outflow of any sort of exterior structures or social conventions or tools like Instagram seem like they're going to be as helpful and good as the people who are engaging in them are willing to be hospitable and kind of human in how they're sharing those interactions. Mm -hmm. And when the tool or maybe the social structure becomes the object itself that all the expectation is put on those tools or structures to do all the work Mm -hmm. that then gets people out of actually having to be known or knowing or Mm -hmm. generous or kind or um, willing to be inconvenienced 
it seems like that's when things get really like harsh and sterile or weird or the studio visit becomes something much smaller than maybe it could be. Mm -hmm. Um, I would say that, I would say that uh, you've, you've been around me for me said a million times and I've said on the podcast quite often at the, at the end of every human um, action, especially an action towards making like a, an actionable item, like a work of art or whatever, at the end of every human action is human relationship at the end of it. And it becomes a question of the um, undoing of human relationships or the enhancing. And then there's another set of issues around ethics and morality with that. But at at a minimum, uh, the arts at the end of the day always include a human audience and human interaction. And um, when you get that, it clarifies that the goal is not more power or money, but it is to to draw people together. So why would you delay that in the short? Like why would you delay that when when it's it's being cultivated and infused in a studio visit for some future gain? Why not build a culture where that's recognized and understood as part and parcel, and uh, more conducive to the kind of flourishing that would be advantageous for everyone? So as opposed to the sterilization. And the pragmatism towards, and, and that's a that's a towards you know towards some future power gain of money, collector identity status. So it's sort of like, well, once I establish my identity as an artist and I'm secure, then I'll be actually accessible. Well, right, but that's never going to come because because there's always going to be an audience that's a little greater. There's always going to be a little better collector, a bigger museum. There's always something that you can delay to gain more of. And and you know it was when they asked Rockefeller how much money is enough money. And he said, just a little more. How much money is enough money? Just a little bit more. Well, how much acclaim and status is enough? Just a little bit more. That that will go to your grave as a difficulty and a desire to have a little bit more. And so you'll look back and say, I should have been more accessible. I should have been more relatable. I probably should have uh, interacted with more people sooner. I should have allowed people to have honest responses to my work sooner so that more generative fruit could have been bore out in them as they go on their way into their own creative endeavors with their children or their neighbors or their family or their friends. And we, we've missed it so heavily, so heavily, but we don't have to anymore. We don't have to, but it requires you to be seen as antithetical to the system, the kind of technocratic, elitist, um, uh, money-driven, power-driven, sort of breakaway society-driven where you're like, your your um, you need separation to fill the identity power, so you don't want to become an artist that's parasitic to a system that you don't actually believe in. Hmm. You don't want to be like I'm not an elitist. Screw the rich people, but I need their money. So I, I love it if they bought some of my paintings. Yeah, so so cool. I mean, I, listen, I ain't judging anybody. If you guys sell a painting, sell a painting. But I'm, I'm talking big picture and saying if you really want a different world. Well, then you got to see decide what sacrifices you're willing to make to have a different world, and um, you know, any chance I can, I'm trying to have these conversations with people, even if that means that I get um, spit out of their mouth because their tastes are too fine, and they're like, "This guy's actually being too real for me. I can't. I'm not gonna. Uh, this is he's he's messing up my vibe." Okay, fine. Well, you still have you you have to taste it to know it's messing up your vibe. So at least you got to taste. And I'm going to move on and, you know, relate to the next person and keep the door open. So, you know, how do I practice this in my studio? Uh, well, I teach out of my studio because I'm a professor and we're still sort of in quasi pandemic. But uh, that means that my kids can come into my studio whenever they want. 
because they are also my neighbor and they can come in anytime. Like, what are you doing, dad? It's not a man cave. It's not. Yeah. So I practice this It's a practice. I practice being inconvenienced. I practice being prepared to answer questions and to the point that's not practice. It's just authentic interaction with my kids most times. Yeah. So you would say maybe that, um, there's an opportunity to, for artists to build out of practice, especially maybe younger artists, to assume that their studios may be in more public space yes. than has historically been assumed. 100%. And that would frame up their expectations for the space that they're doing their work in and who can enter into it in such a way that when the opportunities do occur for anyone from a friend or a family member to a possible buyer to a professor comes in that it's just already sort of built into the assumption that like, and that kind of gets back to your, your comment, like you're always working for people. Like there's mm -hmm. always an audience. Mm -hmm. um, there is always a human recipient to the work that the artist is making. Right. And so if that's the case, in terms of the, the <laughs> end for the work, mm -hmm. and, you know, the work could have other ends. Yeah. Um, then the space where the work is being made it makes so sense that makes, space so would have an end towards that's right. human so relationships the, the too. Ends, ends are much greater, but but there. But so then you talk about it more of the life of the work and the life of the studio. Mm. So this is the then becomes the better way to think about it because it's a little more open than just yep. saying sort of it's anticipating it down. various audiences. So like I I um, just sent three works to Detroit to be in a show, and uh, the the works have been shown different places, and they've also sat in my studio, and you've seen them, and other people have seen them, and so they've. They've been living a kind of life uh, in the midst of of the life of the studio, and um, both formalized and unformalized. So there's something rich about in in at least in my internal internalization of the works. There's something nice, and there's a richness to that. Um, the the metaphorical acquisition of the aroma of the studio in the works themselves uh, being shipped over to Detroit and acquiring a little bit of that aroma and like the eyes of like, there's something kind of poetically nice about that, you know, to, to put it in kind of cheesy terms, I guess. It's sort of like um, the, the work absorbs a history yeah. as it lives its life. Yeah. In the same way that, I mean, to a lesser extent, but in the same way that people do. Sure. Like you have like people who lived in a certain area for a while and yeah. when they leave, they yep. kind of take a little bit of that yeah. with them because I don't know. The world is such that it makes marks on us. Yeah. I would say with people is to a greater extent because people are the chief at absorbing, uh, the, the milieu they uh, dwell within, which, which is why, uh, we should be stewarding good dwelling spaces in anticipation of people and not bad ones. Yeah. Because we will be permeated by the pollution of the cultural environment. And I'm not just talking about, um, industrial pollution. I'm talking about like, soul pollution and you know uh mental state pollution music pollution like i'm saying there is a non-neutralness to the world such that we should be working towards um truly inclusive ends yeah you know, read you know with with a, a a tweak on the way i think we popularly think about inclusivity so i would just leave it there and say uh, maybe a different understanding of inclusivity yeah it's almost yeah. like uh Gosh, I feel like a whole podcast could probably be done just on the topic of hospitality. Oh, I wonder. We might be doing that, actually. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I think uh, uh, a Shaco uh, 
colleague of ours might be coming on to do a talk with that. So interesting. Yeah, interesting. Could be a good lead up. I'll be uh, looking yeah. forward to that. Yeah. 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 Nice. Well, I think this might be a good place to wind down for this one. And maybe we'll come back and do a second round of this. I don't yeah, know. Yeah. No, topic. I think that'd be good. I feel like we've kind of sort of established some categories that have been helpful for me at least. Um, but I definitely have some more questions maybe into the practicality of how someone like myself, who's maybe a little bit outside of the yeah. art world. You know, like I'm interested and intrigued at the idea. So maybe some more like practicals, like how people can start engaging in sort of the studio visit. Write those questions down. Let's do the second part. We'll do a second part with that. We'll talk about that. Okay. But yeah. Think yeah. about it. That'd be great. I think that would be, I think that'd be interesting for artists to hear from someone who's raising these questions. Okay. So I like that a lot. Cool. Well, we'll have to catch up next time. Yeah. And with that, we love everybody listening. We, hey, listen, if you love our podcast, write us a review. Give us some stars, like a five star. We Reviews help get the algorithms going. We'd love to get the podcast into more people's hands. I know some sometimes, like, it's like we don't, we don't want to, you're like, I feel like sometimes we're a guilty pleasure where you listen, but you're like, I'm not sharing this with anybody because I don't want them to know I'll listen to these, these guys because they're saying some wild stuff. But, you know, share it with people you think might be interested and uh, give us some likes, a review would help, you know, things like this just help in the, the technocratic, um, <laughs> oppressive digital space we live <laughs> in that is completely controlled. But um, help us out and check out our Patreon. We, we are uh, a nonprofit organization. We are a 501c3. Chocolate Art Space is the umbrella nonprofit. And we are a artist-run artist space that supports artists and designers and and the culture like we try to live what we talk about so if you've been you know benefited by us consider supporting us even two bucks a month helps five bucks ten bucks a hundred bucks um we've got some big fundraising campaigns coming so uh, consider helping us and with that we love you and we'll see you soon you've been listening to shaco art speak a production of shaco art space we are an independent non-profit art gallery in richmond virginia we can be found online at shacoartspace.com and in real life in historic Shaco Bottle.